Welcome back to episode 8 of page 94, the Private Eye podcast, now officially with more episodes than this joke will comfortably accommodate. My name is Andrew Hunter-Murray, and this week we will be talking to Michael Heath, the legendary irascible cartoonist who is celebrating 60 years of drawing funny things. But before that, uh, readers of the magazine may have noticed that there was a huge piece in the back of this week's issue on who actually owns Britain. In total, there is a chunk of the country the size of Surrey, which is owned from outside or by foreign registered companies and by various parties who would rather keep their identities secret for whatever reason. I spoke to two of the eyes' investigative team about how exactly they found this out and what we can do about it. Here they are. So I'm here with Richard Brooks and Christian Eriksson, who've both been investigating foreign land ownership and dodgy estate planning basically all over the country. Is that a fair summation of what's been going on? Uh, yeah, it is. Um, but just to be clear, the the land is very much England. This is uh, England's very green, very pleasant land, thousands of acres of it, owned by offshore companies. Uh, exactly how many thousand acres are we talking about here? We're not sure of the total, but uh, we have found out that since 1999, 490,000 acres have been bought up by companies based in tax havens. That's a pretty big area that's bigger than Greater London and it's bigger than Surrey. And I think it said in the article there were, is it 97,500 properties which fall into this category, which is owned by, say it again, is it foreign companies? These are foreign registered companies. Okay. Yeah. Uh, most of them are in tax havens like Jersey, British Virgin Islands, Cayman Islands, Panama, all the usual suspects. Um, and they can be the huge country estates that give you this large number of this large acreage or they can be individual houses often in you know super prime properties in london okay so christian if we know that these are owned by uh foreign-owned companies or foreign registered companies do we know who owns the companies uh it's often very difficult to determine exactly who owns these companies but we've managed to track down a few telling examples using other public databases uh, for example, Companies House or the Electoral Roll via 192. Uh, often you can get some clues as to who really owns these estates. Um, what kind of people are we talking about who do own the estates? I know that they're going to be very wealthy people, obviously, but <laughs> is it British citizens who nonetheless control these foreign registered companies? Is it all sorts of people? Quite often it's British citizens. Sometimes it's very blue-blooded British citizens. You know, we have descendants of Robert Cecil, Viscount Cranbourne, <laughs> owning vast tracts of England through offshore companies. Sometimes it's uh, very rich overseas business people. We have a Swiss foreign exchange dealer who, via an offshore company, owns a little village, a whole village in um, Buckinghamshire, which is the sort of chocolate box English village used as the backdrop for Midsummer Murders and Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. So Midsummer Murders, Midsummer is owned by a foreign registered company held in trust for a Swiss foreign exchange dealer. That's right. It's a company called Hambledon Estates Limited. It's registered in British Virgin Islands. You don't see many palm trees, though, on Midsummer Murders. <laughs> what's, what's the advantage to doing this? Well, there are a number of advantages. It's quite difficult to actually determine precisely why each of the owners have structured their estates in this particular way. The kinds of reasons usually range from, you know, your typical tax avoidance um, to... A classic. A classic to uh, uh, avoiding inheritance tax, or in some cases, these structures can be used by those with dubious wealth to hide. There was something in the piece about uh, an 
arms dealer. Oh, that's right. Uh, Prince Bandar. Who's Prince Bandar? Prince Bandar was the main fixer on the Al Yamama deal, the okay. corruption-riddled BAE systems deal with Saudi Arabia in the 80s. Um, and he owns um, an estate called Glimpton Park okay. through a uh, Jersey company. Um, that's in, in the Cotswolds, which is a popular location for not just for arms dealers, but for <laughs> offshore companies as well. <laughs> As, as well as Top Gear presenters, <laughs> news international journalists. Also, I rather enjoyed the thing about Lord Rothermere. Uh, I believe that he himself is involved to a certain extent in this. Is that right? Yeah, uh, the um, Daily Mail proprietor is a big landowner. He controls, we reckon, about 300 acres of land through offshore companies. Okay, so 300 um, is quite a small number, it would seem, wouldn't it? Uh, you know, I, mean, I don't know where you live, It's more acres but... than I've got, I'm just saying, you know, but you, you hear about these... Sorry, yeah, I mean, the total is 490,000 acres, yeah. so I suppose I suppose compared yeah. with that, it seems smaller, but OK. Yeah, he's not one of the biggest landowners, but it, in fact, um, that 300 acres is made up of uh, quite a bit of farmland, mm. but also some very, very small areas, like a parking space in Kensington is owned through an offshore company. That's probably 0.0-something acres. <laughs> Um, it's in there. I'm sure it's valuable, though, if it's a parking space in Kensington. I think it is. I think it's worth six figures. It is kind of amazing, the, the amount of the country that is owned by not individuals but by firms. You don't really think of these lovely estates as being owned by um, companies, specifically not companies registered in the British Virgin Islands. You know, that seems strange. It, it is very strange, and it prevents us getting a full picture of who owns England and who owns Britain. Because although we can sometimes identify who's behind them, often you can't, and often that's the whole reason. Many of the 97,000 offshore company-owned properties in England are owned through those structures precisely so that you can't find out who owns them. And not just so that we, public or journalists, can't find out, but also sometimes so that law enforcers can't find out. So it puts British property in, in very dubious hands sometimes. The article closes with a line by uh, David Cameron, who promised to uh, break down the walls of corporate secrecy, which conceals this kind of thing. But actually, even if the plans that he's got are enacted, the, the, only the UK companies which own these properties will be made public. Is that right? That's right. David Cameron's saying that he's going to open up British companies so that they have to declare their beneficial owners. But that only applies to UK companies. It doesn't apply to companies in all the overseas territories, all the tax havens. Yeah. Would, he uh, have, would he have control over that? Political control of the tax havens is such that, yes, if he wanted to, okay. he could force them to do that. He's chosen not to. He's leaving them to decide whether to do it for themselves. And surprisingly, they've decided not to. <laughs> what, if anything, can be done about this? You know, I mean, we, we seem to be at an impasse now where so many properties are held overseas that it's, it's sort of impossible to know who owns them. Is there any way back from that? Well, the first thing you could do is insist that any company that owns land in Britain declares its beneficial ownership. That would be very simple to do. You, you could say that um, you can't register land unless you declare the beneficial owner. Um, but there's no signs of that happening yet. Beyond that, um, I think it, it does take us into the whole area of uh, tax haven companies and how not just not just when they own land, but when they do any business, we really ought to know who the beneficial owners are because it's at the moment it's just a complete escape from any accountability at all. I must say it doesn't make very comforting reading, if I can put it that way. You know, the fact that these sort of vast tracts of land are all being held overseas. It's um, a little bit dispiriting, I'd say. 
you know, because I think we all aspire to own 300 acres of um, of Wiltshire or, you know, a parking space in Kensington. So it's it's kind of very sad to read. Yeah, I, I think it's pretty sad because we've only uh, covered a very, very, very small sample um, in this week's issue. What comes next, basically? Well, this is only really the first step. Uh, uh, as you rightly say, this is a very, very small sample of all of the offshore estates and properties uh, held in sunny Caribbean tax havens <laughs> or otherwise. Uh, there's plenty more in the pipeline, um, but I'm, I'm afraid we can't reveal too many details as yet. But uh, suffice to say that there should be some interesting stories uh, so as you go for your country walk next weekend and you stare at the gorgeous vistas of England, you'll never know whether you're actually looking at something owned from, you know, some sunny island tax haven in the Caribbean. It is well, a bit disappointing. That is a nice way of thinking that you're saving money on your next Caribbean break, isn't it? You can just go for a walk in the Cotswolds <laughs> instead and you'll, you'll really be in the British Virgin Islands. So maybe not, not so discouraging. As the rain lashes your face, you can imagine. And in fact, actually be in the British Virgin Islands. Yeah. Uh, Richard Brooks and Christian Eriksen there showing that sunny foreign claims are much more attainable than you'd think. Now, uh, Michael Heath is one of the eye's longest standing cartoonists. Actually, he's been drawing since before the eye existed. And last week, he celebrated 60 years as a cartoonist. I went to interview him, and I think it's only fair to warn listeners with nervous dispositions that they might want to just go and make a cup of tea or something while this is happening. Before speaking to him, however, here is Nick Newman, one of the eye's senior cartoonists and cartoon wranglers, to explain exactly who Michael Heath is, why he's so grumpy, and why he's so good. Here's Nick. Michael Heath is probably one of the greatest cartoonists living, I would say. He's just celebrated about 60 years in journalism, which is a phenomenal achievement for those some of us who aren't quite 60 ourselves. <laughs> He's been drawing since 1954. And I think what marks Michael out from um, all the rest of us is that he is unbelievably prolific right from the early days when I first met him in the 1980s I don't think there was a single newspaper in the country which didn't uh, carry his work and the reason is because it's it's of such a consistently high standard the other thing that I think marks him out from the rest of us is that he is I think the closest we've got in cartooning terms to Picasso in that uh, right from the early days in the 1950s when he started (laughs) off he could draw Beautifully, he could draw in any style you wanted, and his his early work sort of rather looked a bit like Quentin Blake's, and it's very fresh, spontaneous, but very charming. And having done that, he's sort of gone off and spiralled off and created this sort of world of his own, which defies perspective and all the rules of drawing, and he just starts drawing and it finishes up somehow people's arms longer uh, <laughs> one arm's longer than the other it's a it's a remarkable feat that he pulls off there's one which actually made it into the recent cartoons book which is of his is it a day in the life of a cartoonist yes and it starts off with um, a miserable looking man getting out of bed listening to depressing news and his partner saying tracy emin makes real money then he gets a ch- uh, demand from the inland revenue sits at his drawing desk with a big balloon above his head saying blank. Meanwhile, his partner's saying, I'm leaving you. Then, bingo, he has a funny idea, and it's like a light bulb above, above his head. And he goes, ha, 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 post it off to the cartoon editor of Funny Mag. The cartoon editor of the Funny Mag is blind, 
and he's sitting there in his office with a uh, golden retriever and he has a re- reject slip which says, your gag is not funny, Mr. So-called Funny Man. <laughs> and it just, that is everything that, that cartoonists sort of feel, is, that's their life. You've got hope, despair, um, <laughs> ecstasy, misery, um, and, and Michael's done it in, in, you know, perfectly. Without further ado, let's hear from Michael. I should warn you that due to an extravagant technological cock-up, the sound quality on the next bit is very bad, so apologies for that. I started off by asking Michael about how he got into the cartooning game in the first place. Well, I started in 55. My first drawings were published in Melody Maker magazine, and I think that's 55. Okay. Uh, How did he start in it? Well, oh God, that's what I wanted to do, I think. I couldn't do anything else. I had no education. I had uh, the war was over, obviously. Um, I had to get a job, as everyone had to in those days. Otherwise, you were pariah society. It never occurred to us not to get a job somehow. But <laughs> what could I do? My father was an illustrator of children's comics, cowboys and Indians, and okay. he hated doing it. He was a teacher, really, art teacher, but he had been talked into it, and. Um, but I saw he was making some sort of living out of it, not a good one. And I thought, well, I'll do that. You say he disliked it. Why did you start? If, he, if you saw him not I enjoying saw, it? I saw, well, often things come from, most things it seems to me come from defeat. You could often have a horrible holiday, but that's the one you remember and talk about, make other people laugh about. Whereas a good one, it's just boring. You say, oh, I had a really terrific holiday. You just lay in the sun all day and just had... Kind of, you know, and that's it. But if you had a real nightmare, a snake cut through the bath and the toilet got blocked and you were knocked over and you, you know, that sort yeah. of thing. Yeah. That's, a, you could, that's fun. And you, oh, that was a, remember that, you know, that sort of fun. So things come out of where you don't think they're going to come out and also vanish. They come out. So when you least expect it, things change. And for reasons I do not know anything about, and I cannot remember, I wish to be a cartoonist like the New Yorker cartoons. Yeah. Not Punch, not English, but New Yorker. For some reason, I'd seen a copy or somebody brought me one. That was what I wanted to be. I wanted to be a top New Yorker cartoonist. They were then funny. Okay. In so much that Americans were funny. The movies they made were often very, very witty and very, very funny. We weren't. The English were very slow and boring. And cartoons in Punch were also very slow and boring. And that would be interesting. I wanted to be Peter Arno, who was a top cartoonist for the New Yorker magazine. And in those days, he had the adoration of a pop star like it. Right. Girls chasing him, a car. He could play piano very well, jazz and all the rest of it. And I had lived in New York. And New York then was considered a sexy, wonderful place. So I thought that was it. I'd be a, a cartoonist. And I love jazz. I don't talk about it anymore because people... <laughs> hate it and regard you as mentally ill if you like jazz but it was only just a particular period coming out of New York 1947 to 55 maybe yeah. and it was Monk Thelonious Monk Charlie Parker one of your first published cartoons was of a jazz trio that's yes, right. Thelonious Monk trio I thought that's it I want to be like them not only my cartoonist but like they were witty fast enormously clever no one could copy them mm. nothing like you hear now and I thought that was it. This joke must be funny, look like it's been done extremely quickly, witty hopefully, and assuming an audience which had half a brain. Okay. Something you can't do now. Well, what kind of, what kind of people do you like to draw, if there is a theme among them? Is there a 
kind of person who you think it's funnier uh, to draw? I, I don't know. I suppose the reality of it all is that I'm being sneaky and I'm drawing people that draw I don't like or, or if I'm irritating or they, you know, idiotic or take themselves seriously or, or, or in my case, they are happy, which I find almost indescribably difficult to deal with. <laughs> um, they don't know anything and they're proud of it. And nowadays, since 1950... They're encouraged to be idiotic, and you can be a teenager from the age of 16 up until about 45 now. Uh, there's a cartoon of yours in the latest uh, issue of Private Eye. That's right. They're on, they are. Oh, I mean, I didn't make it up. They're <laughs> on kids' scooters. Yeah, it's of two, we should say, it's of two sort of very, very elderly teenagers almost. They've, well, they they've got they're, tattoos, they're, they're, they're on scooters. They're old men, they've got paunches, and they're on scooters. And they've got, what that came to me... Uh, about three weeks ago, oh, they are, because I thought everyone's got a gadget. They're all talking about fucking gadgets and things they collect and rubbish they talk and, and things that they look at, which is all drivel and things blowing each other up. Terminator 1, 2, 3, and 4, and now Jurassic Park, you know, for the really intelligent. I was brought up because I was, I suppose, an inverted or some peculiar snob. None of that. You know, we looked at you know early German movies and silent <laughs> stuff and French movies and. So I guess I'm a snob looking back at it, but I never went with the with the flow, and, and, and I suppose that was a because I had no education. I was very shy, but I didn't like what other people liked. Who taught me that? I don't know. I suppose my mother or whatever or yeah. father. I and thought you could put something down about these wretched people who took themselves seriously about whatever it is they do, getting married or clothes or or, or whatever they do. They they do it with the law. I mean, when I was doing Great Balls of Today, yeah. I put them all in there. And I, what I enjoy doing is putting the clothes in, the hair in, and the way they looked. So if you look them up now, in the 50, late 50s and 60s and 70s, yeah. you can see how people were boring about Tom Stoppard, or, and you check out the clothing, and that I thought was good, because I, I remember at Punch Magazine, when you look at bound copies, you could say, good Lord, how interesting they wore that, or yeah. they looked like that, or their hair was like that, or that must be, called, that must be a flapper in 1922. And I've always changed my clothing along with the public because it seemed to me that you didn't... The hell on earth to me was to end up like Thurwell and do the same thing every drawing. Right. There's one classic description of a cartoonist, which is someone who sits at home all day staring at the wall, alternately barking with laughter and howling with despair. Right. Correct? I've heard that, I guess. Uh, <laughs> the best one I hear is the editor, Harold Ross of uh, New Yorker magazine, when it was brilliant, blah, 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 and he was a brilliant editor. And he said, I just don't, I, I love this guy's work, this terrific, whoever it was he was talking about. He said, but don't ever, I don't want to ever see him, because I've met cartoonists and they give me sinking feelings. <laughs> so, no, that's about right. <laughs> why, why is that? Why are cartoonists gloomy? I don't go along with that. I mean, I really don't go along with okay. that. I keep people in fits, if you'll forgive me say so. I'm only saying that because you're saying I'd, I'm gloomy. I'm not gloomy. I'm much aware of... I mean, if you had your wits about you and you're intelligent enough, you'd have shot yourself ages ago. It's out there. It's horrific. You know, what things are happening and half-wits doing things and awful things are happening in Soho and all the rest of it and be pulling everything down they can and build rubbish. And, and the whole world's being taken over by drivel. They are, by nature, neurotic. I think you are neurotic to want to be a cartoonist. It's a form of shyness, and you can put people down without actually standing and uh, talking at them. Okay. It's a private vice. <laughs> but it's one that you then show off in the pages of 
magazines and newspapers. And well, I do. I mean, I put it in. If, if you get it, you get it. Yeah. I mean, if you don't, you don't. That's not, I can't help that. But I'm saying, look at these cults on children's scooters. I mean, <laughs> uh, they're 45. You know, in my time, they'd have been in the wall, blown apart. Mm. But the people I've always known who make me laugh, people like Francis Bacon and all those have been stitches. They didn't yeah. want to, but I mean, they were... And they were funny. They, they were frightening, but I mean, they were. <laughs> I can't draw, you know, all that sort of thing. They'd say to me, "I would if if I here, yeah. I employ cartoonists. If I like them, I employ them. Yeah, I do not say to them, do it like this or change it like that. I just leave them to their own devices. Like my jazz people, you didn't go up Charlie Parker and say, no, 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 that's not quite right." And say to Monk, hang on, you've hit the wrong note. You've just said you like them and you paid them to work for you. If you know you've got someone, you don't go up to Ernie's Hemingway and say, look, look, what are you talking about? What's this Spanish nonsense? <laughs> you know, what? Sorry? Uh, fish? What are you talking about? But I can't teach cartooning. You can't teach it. I've tried it. You cannot teach it. Yeah. Do you think there is a future in cartooning? No, no, no. Unless something happens. There are some new ones on the scene. Yeah. We, uh, uh, they're not tested yet, you know. Uh, they haven't had to draw while someone's died in front of them or their wife left them or their children are sick and you're having to draw because the editor wants it tomorrow. Yeah. So you've got to learn to draw whatever your circumstances are. Colds, illness, divorce, separation, all the miseries of life. You've got to go, <laughs> oh, right, yes. You're fine. All oh, right. <laughs> and you can't say, shit, I'm not doing this, like Tracy. You say, I'm not doing fuck backwards again. I'm exhausted. <laughs> you know, so, well, there's 50 million pounds. Enjoy that. You can't do that. Or I phoned to the editor of the mail on Sunday and said, I've got this dreadful headache. I just can't possibly do anything. You say, well, you're fired. <laughs> you see, I mean, well, you know, I, I've, I've had a nervous breakdown or I'm, my... You know, things have happened to me, awful things, awful things have happened to me, truly dreadful, I'm sure they've happened to other people too, uh, but you can't say, I, you can't ever bring it up, you can't say to them, do you mind, I mean, I just don't feel quite up to it, and in a funny way, that's therapy in a way, you know, because you override your neurotic whatever thing, maybe, maybe it's good for you, and that's what you've got to do there, you've got to draw whatever the circumstances, yeah. and they're awful quite often, you know, quite dreadful. But there you are. But you clearly feel the need to do it, though. Well, what else do you do? Oh, I watch television? <laughs> yeah, really? <laughs> I think not. Fair enough. Uh, Michael Heath, thank you very much. Is that it? <laughs> oh, my God, I haven't started. Nick Newman and Michael Heath there. Well, that's everything for this week's edition of Page 94. If you've enjoyed it, please do tell your friends or write a review on iTunes or tweet about it or whatever you like, or just sit quietly and don't worry about it. It's not your job. Either way, we hope you've enjoyed this week's and we'll be back with another before too long. Thank you very much and goodbye.